As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am delighted to be joined today by Aaron Aurora, the Bishop of Kirkstall in the Diocese of Leeds and the Honorary Canon of Ripon Cathedral. Aaron has written the excellent book, Stick With Love, which is the Archbishop of York's Advent book for this year. One of the saints that you feature in your book, St. John of Damascus, he defended icons by pointing to the incarnation of Jesus. Now, I know that traditionally some parts of the church have been sort of fairly wary of images. I mean, why do you think that is? Uh, And do you think that images are are an important part of Christian worship? I think the suspicion of images and images of God is something we can trace back to what we read of the people of God in the Old Testament, the way that when they departed from God, from the golden calf onwards, uh, images uh, that point to idolatry. And I think that's at the heart of the suspicion of images of God that either reduce or replace God to an image. And we know that um, different faith, different faiths, different faith traditions uh, still hold that to be the case that uh, images of God are banned for that sense of it being uh, idolatry. I think what St. John of Damascus sought to do, and it's a tradition that is really venerated and still practised, particularly in the Eastern Church and the Orthodox Church, where the use of icons is something that is uh, used frequently to focus on God. I think what St. John of Damascus argued was that the image of God uh, shouldn't be repl- shouldn't be confused with God Himself. That actually icons are there to assist in a focus on God, rather than to replace or reduce the image of God. But key to that is the incarnation, and key to the difference I think of that we take with other faith traditions in that is the fact that once God enters into human history as Jesus Christ then actually uh, doing representations of uh, what Jesus looked like in and of itself is not idolatry. 
but is actually reflecting the fact that God took human form and became human. I think the really interesting question around all of this, Ruth, is uh, what does this say to us now? So we now live in a society where digital imagery particularly is huge. We know that on social, you know, it's all about Insta, TikTok, YouTube, that it's visual imagery more than anything that has uh, now really become and leads our information, particularly but not exclusively amongst the young. And within that, where are our pictures of Christ? Where are our images of Jesus? Um, uh, many years ago now, uh, the Methodist Church came up with USPG, came up with a brilliant resource called The Christ We Share, which was different images of Jesus from different communities and countries from across the world. And uh, the, those different understandings uh, that that presented of who God is in that representation of Jesus, the different characteristics of God that you see at work. But we're now in a place, I think, where image in this image-driven world, the images of God have been squeezed out. And I think there's a real question for us about what uh, we should be doing to promote those. If so, what images we use, but how we introduce Jesus visually into the conversation. That's a really interesting question, isn't it? And I, and I guess one that is probably not going to be answered straight away or in a simple way. One, what I love um, is, is that every day you have a different person, saint with, with a little s, as you say. And I guess one of the, one of the people whose image has perhaps been sort of distorted or changed um, along the years is, is St. Nicholas. You, you mention him in your book and I guess your depiction may be a little bit surprising for anyone who's come across him as a portly old man dressed in red. I mean, would you just share a little bit about who the real St. Nicholas was? So the real St. Nicholas, Nicholas of Myra, which is in Turkey, uh, was a, a bishop whose name kind of really came to the forefront during the Council of Nicaea. And of course, the Council of Nicaea is where we now get the Nicene Creed, a gathering, a, a synod of bishops in the church. And during that, the bishops debated uh, what became known as the uh, Arian, Arian uh, uh, heresy, uh, named after uh, Arius, uh, the bishop, who advocated that whilst um, Jesus was special, whilst Jesus was exceptional, that fundamentally uh, Jesus was not divine. And uh, as he, uh, so the legend goes, as Arius articulated this, explained this, expounded his view, uh, Nicholas Amira got more and more uh, upset and more and more enraged up to the point where he walked across and slapped uh, Arius in the face. Now, uh, the emperor, the Roman emperor was in the room when this happened. And of course, you're not supposed to, uh, at that point, uh, have acts of violence in front of the emperor. So Nicholas was uh, arrested uh, and chained in, in prison during the rest of uh, the council. 
uh, but released at the end. And so actually, uh, one of the things that he became famous for was his understanding and absolute commitment to the divinity of Jesus Christ, to who uh, Jesus was uh, and is in terms of being uh, both God and man. And that commitment to the divinity of Christ led him to do something unwise in terms of an act of violence, uh, but certainly uh, became something that first cemented uh, who he was. And obviously that's sort of something we celebrate at Christmas, uh, the, the divine baby being born as man, God and man. I mean, why does it matter who Jesus was and is? Why was it so important for Bishop Nicholas, do you think? I think what I go on to talk about in that particular chapter is that for a number of people, uh, that Jesus, and it's almost the old C.S. Lewis formation around this, that who do you consider Jesus to be? You know, was he mad? Was he bad? Or was he true? And you have, um, both in popular culture, uh, people like the novelist and author Philip Pullman, who's uh, written a novel uh, that tries to, that basically takes this same theory that uh, Jesus may have been a good man, uh, but actually that's all he was. You even have, uh, I remember years ago, seeing a picture of Richard Dawkins holding a T-shirt saying, Atheists for Jesus, uh, arguing that, yeah, yeah, Jesus was a, a great teacher, so no denial that Jesus existed. Uh, but just saying, yeah, he probably existed, he was great. But if he lived in this day and time, there's no way he'd believe in God because he'd uh, instead uh, go understand scientific advancement. But actually, I'm persuaded less by those than uh, a story I came across of a young girl called Miriam uh, in a refugee camp uh, who fled uh, from Iraq and who was interviewed on um, the Sat7 satellite channel, on Sat7 Kids. Uh, and Miriam speaks about her faith in Jesus and sitting in a refugee camp uh, without home, uh, having just fled from war. She talks about, uh, for her, who Jesus is, how she doesn't hold grudges against those who've driven her out of the family of how uh, God will protect her and her family and how she owes everything that is good in her life to Jesus. And it's a wonderful testimony to the power of uh, understanding who Jesus is. And for me, so much more persuasive uh, than perhaps popular culture authors or atheists. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Well, I guess you, you mentioned um, Miriam there and there's there's lots of people in your story that you mentioned who, you know, it's it's the situations that they're in are just awful. And, and Leah Sharabu is, is one of the people that you talk about. I mean, how, we, how are we to respond to stories of people like Leah Sharabu where there isn't yet, obviously, a happy ending? I mean, how are we supposed to, yeah, how are we supposed to deal with, with that? And, and what does Christmas sort of speak into those situations for us? 
I suppose part of it uh, fundamentally are the big questions around what seems to be unanswered prayer. When we don't, when we cry out to God, it's something we hear and read about in the Psalms. Yeah, how long, O oh Lord? How long? How long will these people be in captivity? Uh, and whether that's uh, the psalmist speaking of the Babylonian captivity, or whether it's us talking about our Christian uh, sisters and brothers who are in captivity now, uh, that we look to God, that we're faithful and earnest in our prayer for them, for their freedom and for their release. I mean, alongside that uh, story of Leah, uh, who remains in captivity in uh, Nigeria with uh, Boko Haram and ISIS fighters. And uh, Leah's parents uh, still calling on the Nigerian government to intervene and calling on Christian women and men around the world to pray for Leah. Uh, alongside her story, the stories of others who have been released, who have found freedom, after years of captivity and people praying, uh, the story of Asaya Bibi in Pakistan, of uh, Helen Bahan in Eritrea. Uh, earlier, I know uh, for me, uh, she's not in the book. Uh, people like the Russian poet, uh, Irina Rutinshinskaya, who's, uh, again, her story, a Christian woman who was uh, imprisoned during the time of the Soviet Union. Uh, these are stories of hope. Uh, where we uh, continually pray and seek God's uh, answer. I think the reason why Christmas uh, speaks to that is in some ways the song of Simeon, who uh, had been promised and was waiting uh, for the salvation of the Jews to see God's light and in the temple, uh, with Christ in his arms as a child says, now, Lord, you can let your servant go in peace. For mine eyes have seen the salvation of your people, a light to reveal you to the Gentiles. And there is in that prayer um, the recognition of God's promises fulfilled in Christ, of Simeon's waiting uh, being fulfilled in the temple, in God, uh, in God's promise of the Messiah uh, being something that he saw. And I think for us it is that same sense of waiting on the promises of God uh, to be fulfilled, not passively, but earnestly with our hearts crying out and yearning for justice for those who suffer. Talk to me about the Reverend Canna Jemima Prasadam. Oh, Auntie Jemima. Auntie Jemima is absolutely wonderful. She, uh, I first met her in Birmingham, five foot nothing, in a dog collar and a sari, uh, working in one of the hardest inner city parishes in Birmingham, uh, a place of uh, riots, of uh, high knife and gun crime, where her ministry and her passion for uh, Jesus was both innovative and practical uh, at the same time. Uh, Jemima um, 
who was a priest of St. Paul and St. Silas in Lasalle's in Birmingham, uh, practiced something called Bostock theology. There were six Bostocks. Uh, Jemima doesn't drive. And there were six Bostocks in the walk between the vicarage and the church. And so she would make it part of her daily routine. Whenever she walked to church, which she did every day, or walked back from church, to stop at the bus stop and to speak to anyone who was there who was waiting and uh, to just chit-chat with them. But inevitably through the chit-chatting, she'd be there with a sari and a dog collar and they'd talk about anything from the weather to whatever else. But she would talk of Jesus unashamedly, not in a way that sometimes you see um, some brothers and sisters on a street corner uh, you know, giving it large, uh, less that, but more uh, perhaps in the words of uh, 1 Peter, uh, having a reason to explain the faith uh, within uh, and to do so in a way uh, that was respectful uh, to whoever uh, she was engaging with. And she was, she's absolutely stunning, not only in her way to speak about uh, Jesus so naturally, but also in the way that she rooted communities and brought Jesus into it uh, and brought practical demonstrations of Jesus' love into a place of great economic hardship. Um, Jemima, also a great entrepreneur, so one of the things that she noticed, for instance, was that particular area of Birmingham had been designated as a dispersal area for asylum seekers. And at the time, there were a number there from the Democratic Republic of Congo, whose first language is French. And, of course, there were uh, kids, uh, both in the area and who came to church, who were struggling learning French at school. So she thought, now I can see a way here of bringing different people together to bless one another for these asylum seekers who had no community, who were alone, who had no sense of... Uh, uh, being, yeah, were far from home and no sense of uh, being with anyone else, suddenly were being invited to church and saying, come and bless us. Come and bless us with your knowledge of French, which you speak naturally, and help teach these kids. And for kids, engaging with uh, these people who had fled persecution uh, in a way that was respectful and honouring. And in those interactions, Jesus is present. We could certainly all learn a lot from Auntie Jemima, couldn't we? I mean, one of the things that I definitely learned um, through your book was that George Floyd became a Christian while in prison. I mean, some people may not know that, but but what are the many, many things that we can learn from George Floyd's inspirational life and, and then his tragic death? I think one of the things that struck me um, after the death of George Floyd was the number of people who were so keen to... Uh, misrepresent him as uh, and focus entirely on his criminal past and to airbrush from his story uh, redemption, faith and a living faith in Jesus. Um, I think people who perhaps uh, found the reaction the whole Black Lives Matter movement to be something that they either struggled with or opposed uh, went to look at what happened with George Floyd, his uh, brutal murder and death, 
was so traumatic in the way that years ago witnessing a lynching was traumatic. But somehow they sought to minimise the consequences of that by minimising George himself. And I think his story is very human in terms of somebody from uh, a difficult background with great promise, uh, and particularly as a basketball player, had great uh, sporting promise, uh, came off the rails. Uh, some of that uh, involved crime and drugs, but then uh, discovered faith and turned his life around. Uh, worked with the churches in his area to introduce uh, pastors and church workers to uh, people who were on the edge, who started making his own vlogs and videos challenging gun violence and who could speak to people who respected him, young men in particular, because they knew that he had experienced this. So he wasn't uh, preaching to them from a place of not understanding or not knowing, but he was sharing his views with them from a place of having been through it. And he, um, within that, uh, and he wouldn't be alone, Ruth, in this, uh, there but for the grace of God go each of us when um, we come to a place where uh, we fall, we are broken, when the words of Psalm 51 become deeply relevant to us individually in terms of our brokenness before God and we are restored and redeemed and you know sometimes we fall again and uh, that happened in uh, George's life but what was clear was his commitment, his trajectory, his reaching out and response to the love of God. Uh, does that mean George Floyd led a sinless life? and therefore should be beatified. No. Does it mean that he was like the rest of us, someone seeking to respond to the love of God in his life with the circumstances that he faced and point others to Jesus? Yes, it does. Um, I think it was Augustine uh, who famously said that every uh, saint has uh, a past and every sinner has a future that sense that um all of those who we honor as saints uh, not least augustine himself don't come uh, without histories and regardless of that for each of us there is the promise of redemption uh, in christ and forgiveness and uh, george was living that at the time of his brutal murder. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable@premier.org.uk, or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, 
visit premierunbelievable.com.